A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this Malava Malka episode has been generously sponsored in memory of Fred Blumenthal, Yechiel Ben Yoyna, a decorated World War II veteran, Richie Boy, put on tefillin every day for four and a half years in the Army. His yard site is upcoming this week on Yudtes Elul. Before I get into the topic, a very fascinating World War II topic, a Jewish uh, soldier topic, the Ritchie Boys, but I just want to read a couple of recent letters that have been received um, from our great uh, community of Jewish History Soundbites listeners. Last uh, week we had an episode on Rabbi Yitzchak of Rhinus and got a, a letter from a family member of Rav Rhinus. And the letter informed me, and I'm reading from it, there's that Ravrinus left behind original handwritten manuscripts, 80 unpublished volumes of Torah writings, never before reviewed, and were just transferred last year to the National Library of Israel. On a historical note, his father was one of the Talmide Hagra who moved to Tzfas in the 1830s, and when he returned to Europe to fundraise for the community, his wife and seven children died in the earthquake of 1837. Rav Yitzchak Yaakov was one of three children from his second wife. That's the end of that letter. So it's a very interesting uh, both context and the fact that his um, writings were or just um, became available in the uh, National Library. And here's another one from an older episode from the Lower East Side. Um, a disgruntled listener and here it goes. I recently listened to your Lower East Side podcast as an interested former East Sider. I was curious why there was no mention of my school, the Beis Yaakov that existed there from elementary grades through high school, the Beis Yaakov Esther Schoenfeld, first on East Broadway and then on Broom Street. It certainly was worth noting as a change maker for the women on the East Side. So that's that letter. So here you go. We got it mentioned now and definitely... It was not an intentional omission. Well, before, again, before we get to the topic at hand, just, uh, you know, sometimes current events uh, relate so much to history that we have to mention them. Uman is in the news again. It doesn't stop. 
And um, are they going to go to Uman? They're not going to go. So there's in Breslov uh, teachings and the Hasidic, uh, Hasidic teachings of Breslov, this is pretty much an ideal situation that it's difficult to get to Uman because that means there's new Menias this year. There's uh, things that are preventing from coming, so that makes it more challenging. If it's more challenging, that means it's a greater spiritual experience to get there. And uh, if we look back historically, there is always Menias. There is always... Uh, difficulties in getting to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. This is something that uh, we're used to. In fact, it used to be, in recent history, it used to be a communist government preventing uh, people from attending the Uman uh, get-together on Rosh Hashanah, the kibbutz. And now it's fill-in-the-blank uh, government preventing people from going to the Uman kibbutz, uh, whatever you want to fill in the blank. It used to be communist, and now you can, uh, whatever whatever your favorite word is, uh, or, or governments helping everyone stay healthy, or governments being mean and uh, preventing whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. And I definitely don't take any sides in uh, politics, so um, I'm not, I'm just putting it into historical context, obviously. Um, the great kibbutz is, so where is it going to happen this year? So when it was the communists, under the communists, we discussed this, by the way, on last year, I re- highly recommend you listen to last year's Uman Rosh Hashanah history um, episode in honor of Rosh Hashanah. We had it exactly a year ago, uh, pretty much. And it was named, it's called the great kibbutz, the great gathering at Uman. In fact, there was some uh, Breslover uh, Hasidic followers living in Eretz Yisrael, living in the land of Israel at the turn of the century, and some members of the Second Aliyah, socialists who were settling the land, and they were building socialist communes, and they overheard these... So the story goes, and there's some pretty good sources for it, so it might actually be true, that they overheard Breslover Hasidim discussing the great kibbutz uh, in Uman, going to Uman, and they decided to name their socialist commune a kibbutz, a kibbutz. They just changed the accent to the second syllable, and it's very likely and possible that the kibbutz movement is named for it. So, you know, sometimes it was uh, dif- the difficulties in getting to Uman was the hostility of other Hasidim, Tolna, other, sometimes it was, it was governments. So, you know, we have it again this year. Um, well, the, the thing that's different is that now it's become so big in recent years, and it was never like that. It was always a, such a tiny Hasidus. Um, but now it's become like so many thousands of people, so it became a huge story. Um, so if you want to know more about it, listen to last year's episode. It was a great story. Uh, Uman Uman Rosh Hashanah, that's what it was called. So now what we really had last week, um, we get to the topic at hand, was the 75th anniversary of World War II, the end of World War II, just the other day, September 2nd. In uh, you know, the, the World War II in, in Europe ended in May, but in Japan it continued. Um, and uh, in fact, the Marines in Okinawa were very bitter and kind of resentful about all the celebrations going on in uh, across the other side of the world when they were under fire um, from Japanese pillboxes and the war was far from over. It wasn't the end of the war when it ended in May in, in Europe. 
So the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 9th, uh, 6th and 9th, respectively. And then the Soviet Union declares war on Japan and invades China, Japanese-held China. And on August 15th, as a result of either the atomic bombs or the Soviet invasion, or both, or other reasons, it's still debated till today, Emperor Hirohito announces his intention to surrender. So August 15th, that's the first ending. But really, it ended on September 2nd, which is ironic because it's basically six years to the day, almost, of the German invasion of Poland, which was on September 1st. So the official surrender takes place on the USS Missouri battleship to Douglas MacArthur, and I believe Chester Nimitz, the admiral, was also there. And the guns officially fell silent following the most destructive war in human history. So it was a very significant ending, and it's the 75th anniversary now, so it has a lot of historical significance. Um, the surrender of Japan ends the war completely, and it's interesting that the two theaters of the war ended, or not, not really ended, but the uh, symbol, the symbolism of the ending, is two iconic, probably the most famous uh, photographs of the end of World War II are the uh, in in the uh, European theaters of the Soviet the Red Army soldier raising the uh, hammer and sickle, raising the uh, Soviet flag on the Reichstag in Berlin, on a destroyed Berlin in the background, and the other picture is of the six uh, Marines raising the U.S. flag on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima during the Battle of Iwo Jima, which took place earlier on in the war. It wasn't the end. So, in fact, both of those pictures were taken by Jews, Jewish army photographers. Joe Rosenthal was a Jewish-American uh, army photographer, and he took the picture on Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima on February 2nd, and, uh, 1945, so it was before the picture taken in, in Berlin on, on the Reichstag, it was in February, and um, and then Yevgeny Khaldei, who is a Jew from Donetsk in, the, in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, today is a disputed territory, and uh, he actually saw Rosenthal's picture, and he was inspired by it, and he has a Jewish friend in Moscow, so the hammer and sickle Soviet flag to be able to go ahead and raise on the Reichstag when it would be captured. And in May, he's with the Russian army in Berlin, the Red Army in Berlin, and he asks a few soldiers to come with him, and he stages the iconic photo. And Rosenthal, contrary to popular belief, Rosenthal's picture was not staged. Um, and Khaldei's picture was staged, it happens to be, but it, it's irrelevant. It's a fantastic uh, photograph anyway. It's an iconic, and those they were called because both of those, you know, Yevgeny Khaldei was a Soviet Jew working for the Red Army, and Joe Rosenthal was an American Jew, so they called it Two Jews' Revenge. They're, they're revenged by two Jews uh, recording the victory of the Allies over Germany and Japan during World War II. We, we, you know, we talk about Jewish soldiers in the armed forces uh, of the Allied armed forces. Now, we had also an episode on that, so you might want to listen to that also. Um, and uh, I forgot what it's called. It was a long time ago, and it was about uh, Jews serving in the uh, Allied armies of World War II and all the armies, the Soviet Red Army and the American Army and 
and some big numbers, you know, about half a million in the Red Army and over over half a million in the American Army. Also the Polish Army, by the way. There's about 200,000 Jews serving in the Polish Army in the early part of the war. Some actually survived the entire war in prisoner of war camps. The Nazis did perpetrate um, war crimes against prisoners of war on the Eastern Front, especially against the Russians, but against the Poles and other armies in the East as well. But sometimes, especially as far as officers, they they uh, did keep them in prisoner of war camps throughout the duration of the war. Now, there were Jewish officers in the Polish army, mostly doctors, not regular officers. Hard for Jews, because of anti-Semitism in Poland, it was hard for Jews to become officers in the Polish army. But many doctors in the Polish army, which automatically had a, a officer's rank, uh, uh, were survived. Ironic, one of the ironies of... Uh, of World War Two is that they served, survived, almost no Polish Jews survived the war. And here they're in German captivity. And for German captivity, for six years they survived, and, and that's how they survived the war. So where's the memorial for the, the Polish uh, Jews and the Polish army? And how about the Soviet Jews and the Red Army? There's one on Har Herzl, Mount Herzl in Yerushalayim, where it's a memory for... Jewish soldiers who fell defending the Jewish state and the Israeli army. There's two impressive memorials, one for Jews in the Red Army during World War II, one for Jews in the Polish Army during World War II. It's a very interesting statement about the connection of Israel and general Jewish history, which is probably a fascinating topic in itself. So we're going to discuss today a very specific group of those Jewish soldiers, which is a fascinating story and almost unknown of World War II, and that is the Ritchie Boys. There was, the Ritchie Boys um, were named for Fort Ritchie in Maryland, where they trained. So there was over 15,000 Ritchie Boys, but about 2,000 were Jewish. So it was a small minority, but it's a special story. And most of these Jews were refugees. They're recent refugees from Germany, from Austria. Um, the Jewish refugees were actually... Uh, considered somewhat better than the average Ritchie boy because they knew the language better. They barely knew English. And more importantly, they knew the mentality. They knew the German mentality firsthand. And they were recruited by the armed forces during uh, World War II to do interrogation, translation, even some espionage. They primarily worked in counterintelligence. There's a fantastic book written on the topic, if you're interested, which covers the story much more uh, than we could in this uh, episode. It's called Sons and Soldiers, the Untold Story of the Jews Who Escaped the Nazis and Returned with the U.S. Army to Fight Hitler by Bruce Henderson. So there's German Jews fleeing in the 1930s. Um, some made it to the United States. Uh, there's this tremendous feeling of betrayal that German Jews feel, which is a very different experience than the Jews from other countries in Europe who were occupied by the Germans during World War II by a foreign invader, Polish Jews, Russian Jews, Belgian and French and Dutch and any other country that was invaded by Germany. So you have this foreign invader. Whereas by German Jews, the experience is, is that it's their country who, not during a war, it's during peacetime, they rise up against them. And they feel very betrayed. These are German citizens who felt very loyal and patriotic towards Germany. And now it's their own country turning against them. And there's this tremendous feeling of what happened to their country, um, which is also an interesting story. It's a different experience, a Holocaust experience, than most uh, other Jews in Europe. And many of them get out before the war. Um, 
And you have to understand, most of the Ritchie boys, their fathers had served with distinction for the German army during World War I, and some were decorated war heroes. And here their children are running away and eventually join the American army to fight Germany. So it's an interesting situation to them. So we have Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, and the next day the United States Congress um, declares war. Right? Roosevelt asks Congress, the president asks Congress, which is how things worked. You know, Congress is the one that, the, that passes laws and does things like that, and the president asks them to. And, uh, and they plan on only fighting Japan. Hitler made one of the dumbest blunders of the entire uh, history of the Third Reich, and he goes ahead and declares the war on the United States. A couple of days later, for the last time in American history till this date, Maybe something else will happen in the future. Congress declares war on Germany, and uh, and uh, you know and all the other subsequent wars, uh, Korean War, Vietnam War, and Gulf War, and Afghanistan, and all that. There was never an official declaration of war of Congress. The last time was World War II, and now they're involved in the war against Germany. So at this time, the German speakers are recruited by the military, a very secretive operation, to the Fort Ritchie base in Maryland, which gave it their name. And I don't know if it was named for any Confederate officer, but uh, in any case, to serve on the front lines, this was the purpose, and in intelligence operations, and a very, very secretive operation. The training begins in 1942. They went along with the invading forces of D-Day in 1944, in June 1944, and they're attached to front-line units, like the 82nd and 101st Airborne Division, and the divisions that sweep through France and get caught up in the Battle of the Bulge. And their jobs are to interrogate captured German soldiers, literally in the hours after their capture, on the battlefield to get information that, that, that is to change strategic battle plans and to save American lives in real time. You know, in one instance, they got from a, a captured American, uh, German soldier a map of a minefield and they even had this captured German soldier walk through the minefield to prove that the mines were actually where he claimed they were. He got in another case. They got information that changed uh, battle plans, and uh, you know they they had found um, location of units. Uh, they they were able to find out where German units were. They captured German officers were were admit to what under interrogation were admit to what future German battle plans were. Um, these Jews knew the German. They knew German mentality, like I said, and they had been trained as interrogators to elicit information quickly. Um, their assessment of German morale helped uh, during the during prior and during the Battle of the Bulge. Um, now the espionage on the front lines went both ways, and this is part of what what was happening on the Western Front at that time. The Wehrmacht, the German army, they recruited soldiers who had studied or worked in the United States or had attended U.S. universities to infiltrate the American lines. So it was going both ways, and as a result, it's actually an interesting story. Um, the, because they're actually infiltrating the lines and using American uniforms. Um, so the, the, and, and because of, and, you know, they're able to sometimes get the passwords to get through checkpoints. So the passwords weren't enough. And sentries at U.S. checkpoints in France at the time were ordered to ask questions at these checkpoints related to American culture, because they assumed that these German soldiers might know the passwords, but they would not know American culture. So, one of the questions that they were told to ask were, what are the names of Donald Duck's nephews? And so if you didn't know Huey, Dewey, and Louie, then you were suspected of being a German spy. And there's actually a funny story 
Lieutenant General Omar Bradley, who was commander of the First Army, his jeep was stopped by a clearly uneducated private who was a sentry at a checkpoint, and he was asked, uh, what's the capital of Illinois? So the West Point graduate uh, Lieutenant General of the First Army, Omar Bradley, says the correct answer. He says, Springfield. And the sentry says, you're wrong, it's Chicago. But he let him go anyway, because I guess he was close enough. So this continues with the move into Germany. And when they go into Germany, uh, they, for these boys, for the Ritchie boys, it's returning home. And it's returning home in a very strange way and under very different circumstances as soldiers, sometimes officers in the U.S. Army. Um, one of them, um, he was uh, he was going among, among some German, captured German soldiers in a prisoner POW cage guarded by military police. And he starts asking them about the German railroad system and the German use of chemical warfare, among uh, other things. And... Uh, and he, some of them were actually Nazis, were fanatics who, who weren't cooperating with him. So anyone who didn't cooperate, there was a very simple strategy that all the Ritchie boys used. They, 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 uh, they, uh, they said, "Look, anyone, anyone who doesn't, uh, anyone who doesn't cooperate with us and follow with the interrogation, we turn them over to the Russian interrogators. We're going to turn you over to Commissar Krukov, and." Any threat of handing them over to the dreaded Russians made any prisoner of war immediately open up and answer all the questions fully and accurately. Uh, one of the uh, Ritchie boys even translated the surrender document of the German 21st Army to the 82nd Airborne. So they really at central points of the war effort. They were part of the liberation of the concentration camps in Germany. At this stage, many of them discovered that many of their close family members had been murdered. And it brings the whole war and their service closer to home and gave more meaning to their work. And they said, even though the title of this episode is Revenge, but they, many of them said it wasn't revenge. Uh, you can't revenge. There's no way to revenge and it doesn't have meaning. But, um, but it gave them a sense of, of, of triumph, of, of, of returning, of, uh, of striking back, of doing their part. The, you know, to, you know, after le- having to leave their country under those circumstances and now they're coming back and finding out that many of their families had been murdered in the Holocaust. And in fact, it was not only their family members, but other Ritchie boys. There's this crazy story of a German war crime against the Ritchie boys because they were Jews. There was a German captain named Kurt Bruns, and he uh, had captured two Ritchie boys, Jewish ones, Kurt Jacobs and Murray Zappler. They had been, uh, and, uh, and they're captured, and they're interrogated by Bruns. And Bruns finds out they're German Jews who had interrogated German soldiers in German earlier that day. So he said, the Jews have no right to live in Germany. And again, this is a German army officer. This is not an SS. This is not a death camp. This is to U.S. soldiers. So he, so they tell him, what do you mean? The Geneva Convention. You have to follow the rules of the Geneva Convention. And we treated German soldiers according to the Geneva Convention. When we interrogated German soldiers, we followed all the rules. And uh, instead, this Captain Bruns marches the two captives into a field and has them executed with, by gunfire. He has them killed uh, for being Jews. And uh, later, this Captain Bruns is, is captured by the American army. He's found guilty himself, and then he is executed 
um, after he's tried and found guilty of murder and of, of uh, you know, of, of, of violating the Geneva Accords, and he's killed by a firing squad in uh, right after the war in Europe in June 1945. So um, right after the war, in the post-war, there. Richie boys are helping with the interrogations and investigations. And it's interesting, the Richie boy for whom this episode is dedicated, himself, he came from a family in, in Frankfurt who had lived in Germany for many generations. And he arrives as in America as a refugee in 1937 at 18. And some of his experiences at a Richie boy include liberating Dachau. Um, and he's there at the concentration camp and seeing what happened to his fellow Jews. Um, and, and then later that day, he's in, in the town in, in, the, in Munich, uh, or another town right nearby. And, uh, and there's a German civilian family, uh, who's pleading with an American soldier in German who doesn't understand. So he goes over to translate and he said that they, they, that the American army commandeered this civilian house to use as their headquarters. And when they packed up to leave, they forgot to take a special pot they need to make one of their favorite dishes for dinner. And they wanted to make that dish tonight, and they want permission to go in and retrieve their pot. So this German Jew, this Richie boy, he said, I just came from the concentration camp, so I'm not very sympathetic for your pot. They went into this whole diatribe, how we had no idea... We had no idea what was going on. We had nothing to do with it. So he said, okay, you're not getting your pot back. At least, you know, that's the least that he can, uh, he can do. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the German civilians after the war. Um, these, these Richie boys were taught that when you interrogate a prisoner, you ask some questions that you already know the answer to, to see if the prisoner is lying, to see if you can catch him. This way the, pres- the prisoner never knows if you already know the answer and it'll be more likely to be truthful. So this Frankfurt native, this Jewish Frankfurt native, he asks a German prisoner of war where he trained for the army. So it turns out that it was an army base right outside the town where his grandparents lived. And he had always taken the train from Frankfurt to this town. So he asks the German soldier what stations are along the way. So he started listing them. So he noticed that he skipped one of the stations. So this this uh, German Jewish Richie boy interrogator he jumps up and he says, "Liar! You left out this in this station." So the prisoner freaks out, thinking that this American soldier knows every single train station in Germany, and he starts spewing forth all the information that they needed. Now after Germany surrendered. Um, so there's, there's any German soldier who would, who would, uh, needed to be authorized if they wanted to travel anywhere. So one day, this, uh, Richie boy is, uh, he's working at his desk, and a German general, an army general arrives, and he salutes, and he puts some travel papers down on his desk, and, uh, and, th- and this guy looks at the general, and he's trying to figure out what he wants. He said, this guy last year, if I was a regular German Jew, he would have sent me to a concentration camp. He would have sent me to the gas chambers. And here and now he needs a favor from me. And he looks at the papers and, uh, and he's, it's, it's permission from the American army for this general to travel from point A to point B. So what's, so he said, what do you want? So he said, in between point A and point B, there is a village nearby where my family lives. That's what the German general says. I want permission to take a detour to visit my family. 
I haven't seen my family in six months. So he says to him, uh, he knows the German mentality, you know, so he says, but your papers say that you could only go from town A to town B. You can't go to any other place. So the general responds, yeah, 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 but it's only a short detour. So he says, yeah, but your papers say that it's only from town A to town B. You can't. You can't go if the papers say differently. So the guy starts pleading with him, and he says, I haven't seen my family in six months. So he says, oh. He says, I haven't seen my family in a few years. And a lot of my family I'm never going to see again because of the war that you started and what you did to the Jewish people. And the guy walks out quietly and leaves. And that is a little bit of the story of the Ritchie boys. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, virtual Zoom lectures, sponsorships for episodes and series. And you can subscribe to um, Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or any of your favorite popular podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.